Something strange happened in 1928, a mystery that still, nearly a century later, conjures images of deeply cut canyon walls, adventure in a lonely, formidable wilderness, and the fierce, raw power of whitewater rapids so powerful they can tear the most experienced river runner from their craft. There are places on this planet so ancient and wild they defy our paltry attempts at control and spark in us a sense of wonder that speaks to our most primal senses, echoing back to that vast, mysterious, and largest span of time when humankind was just another species surviving on a prehistoric plane. The Grand Canyon, over a mile deep, and 18 miles wide, is one of those places. Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona spans out over 277 miles, or 446 kilometers, its oldest sections dating to 70 million years old, exposing layers of rock around 1.8 billion years old, though some sections of the canyon are still young if you can consider six million years old, young. If you've seen it with your own eyes, you know that pictures of it are useless at capturing how vast this canyon is. If you're lucky enough to be one of its six million visitors a year, you know the word vast isn't close to good enough for describing this place. We are a curious species. We like the unknown, and we enjoy exploring spaces that trigger a sense of awe inside of us. That sense of adventure inspired a young couple to traverse the Colorado River in 1928. The Colorado has been cutting its way through the canyon for somewhere around six million years. The river carving its way further and further into the earth is what turned the Grand Canyon into one of the world's top ten natural wonders. By 1928, only 45 people in recorded history had managed to traverse the length of the canyon by boat. Newlyweds Glenn and Bessie Hyde wanted to be the next two to do so. On their honeymoon, they decided to attempt a journey through the Grand Canyon down the Colorado River in a boat Glenn himself would build. If they were successful, Bessie would be the first woman in recorded history to make that journey. What happened has become an inseparable piece of Grand Canyon history and lore. Today, we explore the story, the mystery, of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Six million years ago, snow melt from the Rocky Mountains in what is now the western United States wound its way down the mountains, looking for a path to the ocean, filling canyons that had been dry for eons. When most people think of Arizona, they think of desert. Dry, harsh, vast, open spaces of rock and sand. But the higher elevations hold forests teeming with life, where snow falls in the winter. 
the highest point in Arizona at 12,633 feet, or roughly 3,850 meters, is Humphreys Peak, located in the San Francisco Peaks, just north of Flagstaff, Arizona. At the top of Humphreys Peak, there is an Arctic alpine zone, meaning that Arizona's biodiversity ranges all the way from desert to tundra. The San Francisco peaks are considered sacred to local Native American tribes, especially the Hopi and Navajo. They are also the only place where you can find Pacera Francescana, or the San Francisco peaks groundsel, a yellow flowering plant in the sunflower family. It exists nowhere else in the world. Although much of the state is desert, it wasn't always that way. Jellyfish swam in the shallow sea in the Precambrian. The sea left and returned, ebbed and flowed over billions of years. Forests appeared where dinosaurs roamed in the Triassic. In the Jurassic, sand dunes crept their way onto the landscape. You can still see the now solidified footprints of what was most likely a Dilophosaurus that walked across them 200 million years ago a stone snapshot of a single, primal moment in time. The Cretaceous brought the western interior seaway, and with it came species like sea turtles and plesiosaurs. With the Cenozoic came species of prehistoric camels, horses, mastodons, and giant ground sloths. Evidence of human inhabitants in the Grand Canyon dates back to around 13,000 years and the people surviving on that ancient plain would have seen the large, now extinct mammals roaming over the prehistoric landscape. The ancestral Puebloan peoples have lived in and around the canyon for several thousand years. Cliff dwellings, petroglyphs, and pictographs remain and can still be found in the canyon, echoes of its long, ancient past. According to the National Park Service, 11 contemporary indigenous tribes consider the Grand Canyon their homeland, with cultural links to the area, oral histories rich with references to the creation of the canyon and the Colorado River. The canyon is described as the place of emergence for the Navajo, Hopi, Paiute, and Zuni peoples. The Havasupai still live inside the canyon and have been doing so for at least 800 years. The first Europeans to see the canyon were Spaniards who arrived in 1540, soldiers led by García López de Cardenas. In 1540, Francisco Vázquez de Coronado and his Spanish army traveled north from Mexico City, looking for the fabled Seven Cities of Gold. When the army made it to the Grand Canyon, they were led by Hopi guides. Hopi leaders advised their guides to take the unwelcome soldiers along a distorted, extravagant, and erroneous path to the canyon's highest point above the river, and to give them no helpful information about the canyon or its inhabitants. This was a clever move, and the Hopi were able to fool the Spaniards into thinking that the canyon and its surrounding area was nothing but an unnavigable wasteland. The disappointed Spaniards left and the Grand Canyon was left unexplored by Westerners for another 235 years. The first documented expedition to navigate through the Grand Canyon was led by John Wesley Powell, a one-armed Civil War veteran, in 1869. 
Their journey through the Grand Canyon was part of a nearly 1,000-mile exploratory expedition that started from the Green River in Wyoming and ended at the Colorado's confluence with the Virgin River in what is now Utah. Powell started with a team of 10, but one guy decided to take off before the trip was finished because he felt that navigating down an unexplored canyon through unknown whitewater rapids and facing possible death every day was a bit more than he signed on for. Three other team members left later on, choosing to chance a 75-mile desert hike to a Mormon settlement instead of finishing the trip. After leaving the expedition, they were never seen or heard from again. The remaining six explorers went through hundreds of rapids, spent three months in hellish conditions in the Grand Canyon alone, had an overall miserable time, and made history. That is a super condensed version of an incredibly exciting piece of history, but this preamble has already been long, having started way back in the Precambrian era. But when you're researching something as epic as the Grand Canyon, it's impossible not to share at least some of its key points in history. It's the kind of place that makes you want to believe in magic. And I think that's why a young couple in 1928 wanted to venture into that wilderness. They wanted to make their mark in that kind of uncharted unknown that promised adventure. But it's clear now that with that sense of adventure came an underestimation for just how raw the power of the Colorado River could be and how unpredictable the Grand Canyon truly is. People die every year in the Grand Canyon because they underestimate it. It gets somewhere around 6 million visitors a year, and around 12 of them a year die there. Some years that number is higher than others. For example, in 2018, 17 people died in the canyon. That same year, Mount Everest saw five deaths. Granted, the Grand Canyon gets far more visitors than Everest, but it's still a testament to how dangerous this place can be. A good number of deaths in the canyon are from people falling over the rim. They jump from one rock to another, veer off of the paths, or try posing for risky pictures and end up falling to their deaths. The Grand Canyon is a huge tourist destination, and people tend to think that means it's safe. But it's not Disneyland. It's a wild, dangerous place that cannot be tamed, and when we forget that or don't take it seriously, tragedy comes easily. The number one reason people die in the canyon is because of heat and dehydration. Summer temperatures at the bottom of the canyon can reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit, or 47 degrees Celsius. Between June and August, temperatures often reach to over 100 degrees. Outdoor Project recommends that if you plan on hiking in the canyon, you should plan on drinking a full liter of water each hour. They also recommend that you carry no less than three liters at a time, as not every trail has access to water. Not bringing enough water is a fatal mistake made every year by hikers. For Glenn and Bessie Hyde, a lack of water would not be an issue. Glenn Hyde was born in 1898 and first found his love for boating in British Columbia, where his family took canoe trips down the Skeena River. He was adventurous by nature. He spent six months canoeing down the Peace River in Canada, 
and in 1926, he and his sister Jeannie traveled from the Salmon River in Idaho all the way to the Pacific Ocean in a boat, a wooden scow, that he made himself. Bessie Hyde, born Bessie Haley in 1905, didn't have the outdoor experience Glenn did, but she was searching for more adventure than she felt she could find in Parkersburg, West Virginia. She was an artist and a poet and left home, setting out for San Francisco, California on her own. Glenn and Bessie met in 1927 on a passenger ship traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, California. They immediately became enamored with one another. They decided to marry in 1928, but there was one problem. Bessie was already married. She had wed an Earl Helmick the year before. I couldn't find much on their relationship, just that they had gone to high school together, and though they had married in 1926, they had only lived together for two months of their marriage. Bessie left for San Francisco shortly after they were married. I found there were rumors Bessie had been pregnant, hence the wedding, but I found absolutely no information substantiating those rumors. Bessie and Earl's divorce was finalized in April of 1928, and she and Glenn were married the very next day in Twin Falls, Idaho. That October, they set out to make history on their honeymoon. This was before the days of commercial river trips through the canyon. Only professional river runners and seasoned explorers were making their way down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And the canyon had been garnering more and more national attention. Glenn and Bessie wanted in. Glenn wanted to set a new speed record for traveling through the Grand Canyon. Bessie wanted to be the first woman in recorded history to make that journey. If successful, the couple would find fame, or fame enough for lecture circuits, book deals, and maybe even a moving picture. But there was one more thing Glenn was insistent on, something that may have sealed their fate before they even hit the water. Glenn wanted them to run the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon without life jackets, and he wanted to do it in a 20-foot wooden boat he built himself in only two days. They named their boat a wooden scow, Rain in the Face, an apt name. It was a two-ton flat-bottomed sweep scow controlled by two 20-foot oars that jutted out from the bow and the stern. It was sturdy, but not conducive to the big river rapids they would see on the Colorado. Scows of this type were typically only used for shallow waters. It was inflexible, difficult to maneuver, and shaped like a long rectangle. It almost looked like a coffin floating through the rapids it wasn't designed to navigate. They started in Utah, on the Green River. This would give Bessie some experience with whitewater before they hit the big rapids of the Grand Canyon. The couple successfully made it through Labyrinth, Stillwater, and Cataract Canyons without incident. By the time they reached the Grand Canyon, they felt ready to make history. And they would, but not in the way they had planned. They entered the Grand Canyon in October of 1928. They spent their nights staring up through the slotted canyon skyline, gazing at stars unobstructed by artificial light. Their days were spent drifting and maneuvering past billions of years of rock, stratified and towering above them, cold and ominous, closing in as they left the rest of the world behind. It must have felt as if the canyon itself was swallowing them whole. Within a month's time, 
Glenn and Bessie Hyde would become one of the Grand Canyon's most iconic mysteries, disappearing out of history and in to lore. The Colorado River runs through 277 miles of the Grand Canyon. Glenn and Bessie, by the time their course was through, were planning on traveling much further since their adventure had begun in Utah and was set to end in Needles, California. All in all, their trek would stretch well over 600 miles, but the Grand Canyon was the heart and purpose of their journey. Everything they needed was tied down in their scow, Food, clothing, boots, Bessie's diary, a camera, a pistol, even a bedspring mattress. Just not life jackets. 26 days into their journey, they landed at Bright Angel Creek. They wanted to hike up the South Kaibab Trail. This trail is still a popular hike today. Usually, people take the South Kaibab Trail down into the canyon and head back up via the park's most popular trail, the Bright Angel Trail. The reason for this is that the Kaibab Trail is steep, and there isn't much opportunity, if any, to find water until you reach the Colorado River at the bottom of the canyon. From the canyon rim to the river, it is a 4,860-foot, or 1,480-meter, elevation change. Hiking from the rim to the river and back in one day is not recommended. According to the National Park Service, over 250 people are rescued from the canyon each year. Many of them underestimate the heat, hike, and elevation change. Glenn and Bessie hiked to Grand Canyon Village on November 15th, located on the south rim of the canyon. Here, they spent a few days, restocked with supplies, and talked with a reporter from the Denver Post, saying they believed their final destination of Needles, California, was only a few weeks away. It was here they met the legendary Emery Kolb. Emery Kolb and his brother Ellsworth opened a photography studio at the canyon in 1902. They took and sold photos of the canyon for decades, everything from landscapes to mule parties to river runners and hikers. The brothers even filmed their navigation of the Green and Colorado Rivers in 1911. The film ran in the Kolb studio, which still exists, all the way until Emery's death in 1976. Kolb photographed the hides. They planned on coming back for the photo on their return trip. That photo still exists, a nearly century-old black and white. In it, Bessie is smiling, wearing her aviator jacket. Glenn smiles, one hand in his pocket, the other holding his wide-brimmed hat. It looks like a photo destined to be displayed proudly for years on a mantle. The young couple would never come back to retrieve it. Later, Kolb said Bessie had wanted to quit by the time the two reached Grand Canyon Village. She was tired and not interested in finishing the trip, but Glenn insisted they push on. Kolb knew how rough the rapids were going to get for the hides and urged them to take life jackets with them. He even offered his own life jackets to Glenn. Glenn refused them. It was November now and getting colder. It was at a time of year when the sunlight no longer reached the canyon floor. After a few days, they were restocked and fully loaded once again, ready to finish the journey. 
Down at the river, they met Adolf Sutro, grandson of the more famous Adolf Sutro, a German-born engineer and politician who made a fortune in silver and served as the 24th mayor of San Francisco. Sutro was interested in the couple's boat, which was so unlike the ones he was used to seeing on the river. He rode with them for eight miles until they hit Hermit Creek, where he disembarked. Glenn and Bessie rafted on, making it through the daunting waves of Hermit Rapid, situated just past mile 95 in the canyon. As he watched them disappear down the river, Sutro couldn't have known he would be the last person to ever see them alive. All we have after this moment from that cold November is speculation. Glenn and Bessie were scheduled to arrive in Needles, California on December 9th, when they didn't arrive, Glenn's father, Rollin, immediately bought a train ticket and headed for Las Vegas, where he began forming a search party, rather than waiting a few extra days for word in case the couple was running behind schedule. Perhaps it was a father's intuition that triggered an unsettling feeling, because he suspected right away that something was wrong. Glenn's father organized a search within days. He hired indigenous trackers, led multiple river parties, even managed to get Dwight Davis, the Secretary of War at the time, to authorize an aerial search of the canyon. It was a plane that spotted something in December. It was the scow, snagged in the middle of the river at mile 237, just over 40 miles from the mouth of the canyon. It took a few days for a search party to reach the boat. They arrived on Christmas Day, 1928, and found everything on the scow was still intact. The search party, which included the Cole brothers, found food, Glenn's gun, Bessie's diary, their camera, a guidebook, clothing, everything the couple had taken with them. But Glenn and Bessie Hyde were nowhere to be found. They were gone. There was a foot of water in the boat, an indication that they had gone through a rapid and probably been washed out of the scow. Since they weren't wearing life jackets, it's extremely likely they both drowned. Rollin, Glenn's father, hoped the two had abandoned the hard-to-maneuver scow and attempted to hike out of the canyon. Though he hired trackers to scout the area, no evidence ever surfaced to support that theory. If they had simply hiked out, it would be unlikely that they wouldn't have taken any of their supplies, which were all still tied down in the scow. The Cole brothers took pictures of the scene, which still exist. They photographed the scow as it sat snagged in the river. When they cut it loose, the brothers tried their hand at maneuvering it through the river. It was so difficult to handle that they ended up abandoning it. It's remarkable the couple had made it as far as they did in a vessel so unfit for the rapids of the Grand Canyon. The Kolbs told Rollin they believed the two had been thrown from the scow and drowned. Rollin returned the following year to search for their bodies, but nothing of Glenn or Bessie was ever found. Bessie's journal and camera were recovered and examined for clues. The pictures cataloged the trip. Pictures of Glenn in the boat, the river, the breathtaking views. Her last diary entry showed the couple had made it to just before mile 232, which is where they would have run into Killer Fang Falls Rapid. This rapid received its name for the two large rocks at the bottom of it that jut out of the water like fangs. The international scale of river difficulty rates rapids on a scale from 1 to 6. 1 is easy. Six is considered extreme and exploratory. 
This rating is rarely attempted, and mistakes in a Class 6 Rapid can make rescue impossible. Killer Fang Falls, depending on water level and route, can be a Class 5. Glenn and Bessie had tried to navigate it in a homemade scow not fit for this kind of rapid, and they had done it without life jackets. Almost everyone agreed they had simply drowned, their bodies washed out down the river over a month before anyone had even started looking for them. But after a time, conspiracy theories began to surface, like they always do. Bessie's own father wondered if the couple had been murdered. And in 1977, when the skeleton of a young male was found with a bullet wound in his skull, the theory of murder was re-examined. The skeleton was discovered in none other than Emery Kolb's garage, whom they had talked with just before they disappeared. The skeleton was found on Emery Kolb's property just a year after the famed photographer's death, and people began to wonder whether Emery Kolb himself had killed Glenn. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Walter Birkby determined the skeleton had belonged to a Caucasian male who died sometime around the 1920s. He also determined the bullet wound had come from a revolver manufactured around 1902. But when Dr. Birkby compared the facial bone structure of the skull with that of Glenn's, he determined there was no match. The skeleton did not belong to Glenn Hyde. There is a gloriously campy 1987 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, complete with the always excellent narration of Robert Stack, that detailed Dr. Birkby's examination of the skeleton. I highly recommend watching it on YouTube. It is a wonderfully nostalgic experience. But if the skeleton on Kolb's property didn't belong to Glenn Hyde, who did it belong to? In 2008, through a joint effort between the Grand Canyon Museum's collection and the Coconino County Sheriff's Office, the skeleton was identified as having belonged to a suicide victim found in the park at Shoshone Point in 1933. Emery Kolb had served as a county coroner jury representative for the Grand Canyon. The skeletal remains were sent to him after the death inquest. The exact identity of the man is still unknown, but the skeleton has unequivocally been tied to the body found in 1933. But something else happened that reignited an interest in the Hyde story, even before the skeletal surprise found on Kolb's property. And for years, it caused speculation about the disappearance of the Hydes. The story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde has become a keystone story told by river runners since the 1920s. I even heard their story for the first time myself on a river trip down the Yampa River in the early 2000s. I remember being completely enthralled with the mystery of it, especially as it was being told in a setting similar to the one the Hydes would have found themselves in. In 1971, on a commercial river trip through the Grand Canyon, the river runners were camped for the night and, as usual, had gathered around the campfire to talk about the day and tell stories of the canyon. On this particular trip in 1971, one of the adventurers was an elderly woman. She had kept to herself throughout the journey. She didn't say much, just took in the canyon in her own aloof way. But one night, she finally spoke. It was after someone had told the story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. I am Bessie Hyde, she told them in the flickering firelight. The uneasy laughs of the others followed as someone asked, playing along, What did you do with Glenn? 
Stone-faced, the woman, who was the right age, replied, I killed him. She said Glenn was abusive, said they had a fight, after which she stabbed him, then hiked out of the canyon and began a new life for herself. This woman around this one campfire started years more speculation as to the fate of the hides. It was discovered later that her name was actually Liz Cutler. She recanted her story later, was four inches taller than Bessie had been, and actually had a well-documented life and birth certificate proving she was not Bessie Hyde. She was just trying to have some fun messing with the others on the trip. But she fed the flames of a murder conspiracy nonetheless. She isn't the only person that claimed to be Bessie Hyde over the years. According to NPR, four different individuals have surfaced over the last century, claiming to either be Glenn or Bessie. None of their claims have ever been substantiated. There was speculation that the famed river runner Georgie White had actually been Bessie Hyde. After she died in 1992, new rumors sprung up when it was discovered the name on her birth certificate was actually Bessie. A gun was found in her dresser drawer, and she had a marriage license with the name Glenn Hyde on it. This was definitely weird, but Georgie was also too tall and also had a well-documented life proving she was not Bessie Hyde. She is a legend in the river rafting world, though, and even has a rapid named after her. River guide and author Brad Dymock spent two years obsessively researching the disappearance of the Hydes. He traveled from New Hampshire to Hawaii, knocking on doors, reading every document he could, and wrote a now iconic book on the subject called Sunk Without a Sound, The Tragic Colorado River Honeymoon of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. He went so far as to reconstruct an exact replica of the scow the couple used in the canyon and took it down the Colorado River. He said it was completely uncontrollable. It's been 92 years, as of this recording, since Glenn and Bessie Hyde have disappeared in the Grand Canyon. They will always be a part of canyon lore, immortalized around crackling canyon campfires. It is extremely probable that they ventured down the Colorado a century ago, underprepared and overconfident, were thrown from their scow at Killer Fang Falls Rapid without life jackets, and drowned. After researching this story and finding so many dead ends, that's what I personally believe happened. But there is magic in mystery. You can sift through the century of lore for yourself and come to your own conclusions. You can even visit the canyon for yourself and retrace their very steps. And if you can, you should. Experiencing the majesty of the Grand Canyon is something that stirs an awe I can't explain. I mentioned at the start of this podcast that Bessie was a poet. I want to leave you with one of her poems that eerily echoes her fate. Before she disappeared, before she even set foot in the Grand Canyon, she wrote these words. Oh, mama dear, please come. My dolly must be drowned. When I put her on the creek, she sunk without a sound. Wee Betty's eyes filled with tears. Where could poor dolly be? Perhaps she turned into a mermaid and drifted out to sea. Thank you so much for listening to the story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. I hope I did their story, the Colorado, and the Grand Canyon justice. If you do go to the Grand Canyon, remember to bring more water than you'll think you'll need, and stay away from the edge, even if you see a good photo op. 
it would be tragic to become one of the canyon's annual statistics. It's still a wild place, considered sacred by many indigenous tribes. It deserves our respect. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. Your time matters, and I know how many podcasts you have to choose from. Thank you for choosing mine today. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, go make some history.